Hey guys, and welcome to the Exhibit C Podcast, where two guys give their primitive and honest opinions on the world of sports. Welcome back to the podcast. In this episode, we will be reviewing the New York Mets 2020 season and the moves they have made so far in the offseason. We will also be bringing in a special guest who closely follows the Cleveland Indians to talk about the big acquisitions. So, Christian, talk to me about the year the Mets had in 2020. Well, you know, what, Charlie, it was a really weird season for the Mets. It was a season that a lot of Mets fans, a lot of people around the league had a lot of hype going into it. But it didn't really come to fruition over the course of the season. And it kind of led to them being a pretty boring team. But when you look deeper into the stats, it's, there are some shocking numbers there. And one of those being the fact that they led the MLB in batting average. They're right up there in on base percentage home runs. They were up there Uh, strikeout percentage. I, I mean, every really important, offensive category that you might think of they were up if not in the top five they're very close to it but the most important runs i think we can all or the most important category i should say i think we can all agree is runs and that's where they found themselves 13th which that's just not going to get it done at the end of the day yeah i think you hit it right on the the head when it comes to batting average as you'd mentioned uh rbis hits um, on base percentage or top five in most of those categories. And they led the entire MLB in batting average and also hits. But when it came to runs, they were 13th overall, which just didn't really make sense. And maybe it was a small sample size of a season, 60 games, and that would have kind of corrected itself over 162 games. But what we saw was a team with a lot of potential at the plate. They, they obviously, and they had the emergence of guys like Dom Smith, uh, J.D. Davis. I know he doesn't bring a lot of defensive value, neither does Dom Smith, but uh, they kind of came onto the scene in a big way. But then you saw reg- regression and a lot of their players. Uh, Jeff McNeil did did his thing, hit a lot of singles, but Pete Alonzo, even though he had, I think you, what, what number did you see? 16 home runs? Yeah, 16 home runs, which is pretty much right up there with everyone in the MLB. But like you were saying. Yeah, his strikeout um, percentage wasn't that good, but yeah, no. And then just looking deeper into their lineup, like you mentioned, Jeff McNeil slapped a lot of singles around. Dominic Smith, who I don't think really anyone saw coming this year really just blew up this season. Conforto had a great season, kind of what the Mets fans have been expecting for a long time now. And then Robbie Cano, PEDs are not played well. I mean, just looking through the lineup, everyone, the numbers are there for everyone. But like we said, the runs just didn't come in the way that you would expect out of a lineup that produced as well as this. When you talk about their lineup, what what do you see defensively from the Mets? We'll start with this. If if you're looking at the Mets, projecting them into next season, a lot of people are, are thinking that Jeff McNeil is going to make a move into the infield and take over that second base position that Robinson Cano is now vacated. So that would leave them with what, who would you would expect to be Dominic Smith in left field, Brandon Nimmo returning in center field, and Michael Conforto in right field. And just between those three guys, not a single one of them has ever had a season where they've been positive in defensive war, which is not something that you want to see from your outfield. And, and it's actually a problem that you can, you can almost see pretty much throughout the Mets 
um, just defensively, not even just outfield. I think if you, according to Fangrass, if you add up, you definitely make a good point. Conforto's, Smith's, and Nemo's defensive rating and their defensive run saved up, it's negative 11.1, which is the worst in the entire National League. So you you make it, and maybe that's why they didn't win a lot of games is because their defense was laughable in a lot of situations. Um, maybe that changes with a couple of acquisitions they made. But if you're running out Dom Smith out there in left field, and this is where it gets interesting in the National League. If they take the universal DH, you have to imagine that Dom Smith will be um, will change. It kind of like in the Marcelo Zuna mode. He's a great hitter. Uh, doesn't need to be in the field at all. So he'll him or Pete Alonso can switch duties. It doesn't matter. They both have negative uh, defensive ratings uh, from that end. But yeah, that the the universal DH would would really help a team like the Mets. Their defense just struggled last year, and I wouldn't say their offense struggled. Would you? No, not at all. I mean, like you said earlier, with the 60-game sample size, it's obviously not what we're used to. We're used to seeing pretty much three times that. So you you probably if you're a Mets fan, you'd like to think that maybe those numbers would have kind of water would have found its level there with the with the all the amazing statistics that they put up across the board, and then just the fact that they weren't able to score runs. You would probably like to think that over the course of a 162-game season, you would see them closer, um, further in the top 10, maybe pushing into the top five. Uh, again, if you look at the WRC Plus down their lineup, it's it's pretty amazing, especially when you consider 100 is league average. You got Michael Conforto at 157, Dom Smith at 164, Brandon Nimble at 148, uh, Robbie Cano at 141, McNeil at 130. Um, the worst player in their lineup when it comes to WRC Plus was Ahmad Rosario, and he had 75, and he's not even going to be in the lineup next year. So uh, let's transition a little bit to the pitching rotation. Christian, from your lens, what did you kind of see? Well, going into this season, and especially even before spring training, before COVID happened, the loss of Noah Syndergaard uh, to the Tommy John surgery is, is something that's going to be hard for any team to recover from, especially when you were lock, relying on that big one, two, three combo that they have with DeGrom, Syndergaard, and uh, Marcus Stroman. But then once COVID happens, Stroman, even we, we saw him opt out. So that really just left them with their one main horse, which is DeGrom, who we would both agree is is the best pitcher in the MOB. And yeah, it really, it, it kind of hamstrung them there because now there's a lineup or a, a pitching rotation that they're, they're not really comfortable putting out there. They had guys like the shadow of, Rick Porcello out there, a young David Peterson who played okay, uh, Michael Waka, Steven Matz, who's another guy that's just really regressed. And then they even they even gave some starts to one of their best relievers in Seth Lugo, which just probably isn't a winning recipe if uh, from a Mets perspective. It really – it doesn't upset me a lot because I'm a Braves fan and I like to see the Mets not be as successful as the Braves – but it, it's unfortunate to see the Mets dwindle away the the golden years of Jacob Degrom. Right, this dude is the as we both agree the best pitcher probably in the MLB in the last several seasons, and he's already in his thirties and he's going to start regressing, Lord willing, and for our 
for both the Phillies and the Braves' sake. He'll start regressing, and they'll waste these amazing years that they get from DeGrom. And you point out they lose Stroman due to the due to COVID, Syndergaard due to this Tommy John, which which sucks. It's the big the biggest two three that you can have in a rotation, I think, in the National League, and both of them just didn't pitch from last year, so. It was a makeshift rotation. You pointed out Steph Lugo had to make a couple of starts. He's definitely not a starter great out of the pen, though, at least in my – I think if you look at his peripherals, you'll agree that his uh, ERA was inflated because of the the starts that he had to make. But, yeah, Steven Matz, who they were hoping to rely on as their number two, had negative .6 war on the season. So whenever your number two uh, starter – in war is that low and then you have rick porcillo who comes in as number two <laughs> in war overall on the season you're definitely going to struggle a lot uh what about their pin what did you see out of their pin who stood out to you well we mentioned seth lugo he he's a he's a good guy out of the uh good arm out of the pen but he we, he was starting games so they really couldn't use him much as much as they would like to but at, at the top edwin diaz had a huge bounce back season after a pretty I'm really disappointing 2019 for Edwin Diaz. I think his ERA was north of five and it, it just wasn't the guy that you're used to seeing, but he came back this year. And what we saw was the guy that was more like the 2018 uh, Seattle Mariners version of Edwin Diaz. And he, he is a a bona fide closer and the Mets fans will be happy to have him still a young guy. He's 26. So building your pen around that, that's a good, that's a good way to start. And then they also have Juris Familia, who, who's a guy that, um, from a Phillies perspective, he, he's, he's beaten us a, a pretty good bit. And he, he's, I, I believe, is pretty well regarded by Mets fans as well. Yeah, you look at Diaz, and he had the most appearances out of the pin, 26 appearances. And then number two is Juris Familia. Um, but his ERA kind of he, – he performed at just below replacement level um, out of the pen. His ERA was – 4.92, if I'm looking at it correctly. Yeah, I I, th- I don't think that coming into next year, they're relying on him so much. Outside of Diaz, who's a stud, and I think that year last year scared a lot of people because he was one of those key pieces coming over from Seattle when he struggled like he did, scare a lot of Mets fans. Would you would you consider him a top three reliever in the NOEs? Well, he, he's definitely above everyone on the Phillies. I don't think you'd find many people <laughs> disagree with that. Yeah, I mean, if, if he's if he's the guy that we saw in 2018 and 2020, and not the guy that we saw in 2019, then yeah, he's right up there with anyone, uh, no doubt. Yeah, I I would I would say he's Diaz's top three reliever in the NLE. Yeah, there's not there's not many real really like top level closers and set up arms in the NL East as it stands right now. A lot of teams seem to be having a little bit of a struggle with the bullpen. So Christian, let's talk about where they actually placed in the NL East, right? You, you had mentioned that they were predicted actually to compete, not only compete with the Braves, but rankings like the infamous Pakoda rankings had given them like a <laughs> 75% chance to win the NL East. Talk about where they finished. Yeah. Well, we mentioned they, the runs didn't necessarily add up with the rest of the offensive output. It, it wasn't what you would expect from the Mets this year. And the pitching staff was not, it was very, very depleted. So they, they ended up 26 and 34. They were fourth in the division with a minus 22 run differential. And you know what? It was a pretty just boring season for them overall. If you're, 
doing it by wins and losses. They they kind of found themselves maybe in striking distance of a of a wild card spot at the end of the season, but that that really didn't pan out. They were three and seven in their last ten games, so they kind of dwindled away down the stretch there. But yeah, I, I'd say overall pretty disappointing season for Mets fans, but they they definitely have a, a lot going for them moving forward into the future. So, Chris, you're looking at the biggest holes that the Mets had in their lineup and rotation going into the offseason. What have they done to correct that? Well, we mentioned it, but their their pitching staff was really undermanned this year and had bringing back Syndergaard when he becomes healthy, if he becomes the pitcher that he once was, and the the readdition of Stroman to the rotation is that that in and of itself is huge, but, and we'll get into this a lot more later, but they brought in Carlos Carrasco. Who's he's been around for a while now. He's very proven um, pitcher in the MLB. And actually I found this out today. He was once upon a time, the top prospect in the Phillies organization and was sent over to the Indians in the Cliff Lee trade in 2009, which I, th- I thought was fascinating. So he's kind of come full circle back to the NL East. Yeah, and I think the biggest hole now, and, and you had talked about Rosario. We had talked about Rosario leaving, going to the Indians. So they've, they've already filled that hole. I think the biggest hole now, in my perspective, is that bullpen. You got Diaz that you're going to rely on heavily in safe situations. But outside of that, who who's going to be the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning guys? We, we know who the ninth inning guy is going to be, and that's going to be Diaz. Are they going to rely on Jerry's familiar to come back to bounce back. I, I don't see that happen. I, I see that as a liability uh, more than an answer. So I think the bullpen is the biggest question right now for the Mets. And now joining us is my brother-in-law, Freddie, who was a native Ohioan and a lifelong Cleveland sports fan. Freddie, what did you make of to this point, the biggest trade of the off season? So this is the thing is everybody's known that Lindor is going to get traded for two years. So it's just been going. It's just this cycle, right, of you go up to the deadline. Is Lindor getting dealt? Oh, he's, he's, he doesn't get dealt. Okay, we're, gonna, we're going for it. And then we come around to the offseason. It's like this is the hot stove talk, right? You come up to MLB winter meetings. You're waiting for him to get traded. Doesn't get traded. And then it's just been really weird, just like everything, because of COVID. Like, hey, what's going to happen? And it seemed like it was inevitable this offseason that he's getting dealt just because of his contract situation. He's in a walk year. Everybody knows that Dolan's not going to pay him. So Dolan, Paul Dolan is the owner of the Indians. I don't know if he's a cousin or uncle of the Dolan that owns the Knicks, but this family is like just a scourge of sports ownership and just awful. So (laughs) he refuses to pay anyone anything. This is just what you become accustomed to as an Indians fan. It's like, oh, we've got this homegrown talent or this recovered guy. We're going to have him in until he's done with arbitration and then see you later. And they're not even going to pay these guys through arbitration because they're not going to stomach paying somebody $20 million in their walk year, which I think is what Lindor's going to get unless he re-ups with the Mets. So that was all fine. My biggest thing, honestly, as a fan, is that Carrasco, Carlos Carrasco, the pitcher that went over to the Mets in this deal, solid guy, not a world beater, not a name, not a Cy Young guy, but a good number two starter. But th- that honestly hurt me more because he was due 18 or $20 million. It's a total cap shed move. This guy had leukemia 18 months ago, Charles. He was pitching with leukemia in 2018. And then they said, 
oh, he's got like a blood issue, so he's going to be out for the year. Nothing, nothing <clears throat> comes out beyond that. Six months later, he's like, hey, I just finished up my chemo treatment. Uh, I'm going to be back pitching opening, you know, beginning of the year. Actually, I don't even know if that's right. I think that he may have come back in the same season and made a relief appearance. I can't remember exactly what the timeline is. So anyways, you can imagine what that, how that somebody like that, that much of a warrior can endear himself to a fan base. And you know, like how I am, he just, he's a Venezuelan national. He is a nationalized U.S. citizen. He's big. He's got a piece on when he became a U.S. citizen on the Players' Tribune that like anybody should work, should read if they're into, you know, the the propaganda whatever of the american dream like carlos carrasco is it and he's done a ton of work in the community after he's traded he's still going to the cleveland food bank and doling out tons of money and 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 just a huge member he spent the majority of his professional career in the cleveland system um and so that honestly hurt me more to see him go because lindor i was prepared for there'd been a lot of talk around carrasco um this off season that he was going to be moved for salary cap or, or not for salary cap for, for, for cost saving purposes. And, but I was not mentally prepared for that. Lindor was inevitable. And then to be honest, I'm not totally up to date on what the Mets farm system was. So I'm like, Hey, let's check out these guys. And what do I do? Like everybody else. Oh, here's the top 100 prospect list. No one's on them. What is happening? <laughs> I'm like going crazy. Um, and I came back to down to earth a couple of days later about it. Um, just started reading some smarter people. To be honest with you, this is what I would say, Charles. The Indians as an organization, I gr granted no World Series in 70 plus years. I will trust the Indians organization and talent evaluation and development 100 times out of 100 over the Mets. But honestly... <laughs> I don't care what their opinion is. I don't care what they what these guys did with the Mets because if they have a like this a smidge of talent in them from a, particularly this this Josh Wolf guy who's like a 19, 20 year old pitcher that they got a flyer on, he's gonna be really good. Like if he can't succeed in the Indians pitching development system, he's not gonna succeed in any pitching development system. Go going all right, so go back to Lindor. So a lot of NOE's fans know who he is, one of the top shortstops in the game the last few years. Immediately, he comes to the NL East. He's the best shortstop in the East. I don't know too much about him as a player. Just Can you just touch on some of the, the best parts about Lindor? Yeah, I mean, he's a really complete player. So he he's going to get he's going to flash in the field for you. Great range, great arm over at shortstop. So he's going to make spectacular plays uh, on the defensive side of the ball. And then the, the other the other thing is that he's a complete hitter. So pretty good average 270 280 guy but he has really developed the power game that nobody really projected out of him when he was first breaking in uh i think you know i i just kind of wipe away the COVID season to be honest he did he had a really down year last year i don't think that's who he is as a player i still think he's a top i don't know i think inarguably he's a top 10 player in the game regardless of position um and but he's going to give you 30 home runs he's probably going to steal 15 to 20 bases um, so 2018, him and Ramirez were kind of on this tear, uh, until, I don't know, the second week of August where they were looking at a war that was comparable to, um, you know, um, the days of like Mantle and, Jeez. and Garrick. So like you're in historic territory and obviously they didn't finish it off, but 
that's the type of performance that those two combined were, were putting together. So it, a lot, a doubles machine. He's an extra base hit machine. He's a threat every time he comes up. He's going to kill you all regular season long. This is my only complaint about Francisco. And, and the be- honestly, the best part about him is you know, his nickname is Mr. Smile. You know, you as a Braves fan. He's imp- I don't know how people could hate him, to be honest with you. He does a little bat flippy stuff, but nothing bad. He's not a big trash talk. He really enjoys the game of baseball, and he makes it really fun. He's out there having a good time. He's messing with guys on the pickoff moves when they're on second. It, he really he, he keeps the game really fun. He's not this stoic kind of old school guy. He really enjoys baseball, and he has a great time out there. You can tell he loves his teammates. Uh, my only complaint about Lindor is there's a real lack of postseason moments for him in a way that I think would cement him. That's, to me, what pushes you. You know, obviously, Trout has not really had the opportunity or anything like that. Obviously, a little AL bias coming into this NLE's podcast here. But <laughs> just in general, the key, the Trout has been in the postseason his whole career, and he had one grand slam home run against the Yankees. Uh, to come back there, that was a big comeback. And I want to say that wasn't the World Series run year. I'm trying to think it was the year before or after. They ended up losing that series. But that was like, they came back from like six or seven runs down. And he he had the grand slam to tie it in that game, like fifth or sixth inning, middle of the game. But other than that, no big moments. That World Series run, he just kind of limped through. And he didn't, I think he, he didn't have a single home run that whole series or that whole postseason. Um, I think he had a couple doubles, you know, it just, when you're the superstar of superstars, and if you want to be in the top echelon to me, you got to come through in the postseason. The other thing about him is you can hit him. I don't know if you really want to hit him fourth, ideally, but you can hit him anywhere one through three because he can steal bases. So he's led off for the Indians. And I don't know enough about the Mets lineup to, to suggest that I know where they're going to bat him right away, but you know, he, you could put it, bat him first easy and say, hey, we need you to steal 25, 30 bases this year and he'll do it. No problem. To catch the rest of the conversation with Freddie chronicling the state of the Indians and more, check out our Spotify page. So, Christian, after hearing our guests talk about Trevor Bauer, what was your impression of him this offseason, especially when he put the New York Mets and their fans through? Yeah, and I'm going to say it right now. I'm I'm not a huge fan of New York Mets fans, and that's the Phillies fan in me speaking. But what, what Trevor Bauer did did to that team is just, I mean, and to that fan base is it it's funny to me, but I do I do feel some type of sympathy. And and what that what he did was he posted somehow it got out like they called it a glitch on his merchandising website. I believe it's called trevorbauer.com if you want to look it up. But he had he had they had hats out and and hashtags that he was going to the Mets and he was how excited he was to take the mound in 2021 with the Mets. And then whoops, he's signing with the Dodgers for I believe it was three million less than what the um than what the Mets were offering. But I, I thought that when I saw that, I, I just had to laugh because that that's just some a ridiculous situation. It's almost as ridiculous as that video I sent you on Trevor Bauer in kind of the illegal substance apparent the apparent legal substance abuse issue going around in the MLB. What do you think of that video? Charlie sent me this video 
um, I believe it was last week. And Trevor Bauer, he, if you don't if you don't know much about Trevor Bauer, just look the dude up and you'll have a fun time because he's a character, no doubt about it. But this video is talking about this foreign substance that Trevor apparently all of the pitchers that have success in the MLB are using. And Trevor Bauer was like this white knight against it. And over the course of time, he was, he, he was trying to draw attention to the fact that it would increase your the spin rate on your pitches just to some drastic extent. And he, over time, like nobody, nobody would pay attention to it. And so he just realized, well, if everybody else is doing this and nobody cares, I'm going to concoct the best possible foreign substance that I can. And he won the Cy Young last year. So it's kind of like a, uh, you either die a hero or you live long enough to, self, to see yourself become a villain type situation. I, I thought it was hilarious. Uh, yeah, apparently. And, and, and he saw it. And I guess him and Garrett Cole's are fierce rivals. Um, and so he saw Garrett Cole and he's, and he was, I don't know if he claimed too loudly that Garrett Cole was cheating with the Astros. What was the channel? You uh, Baseball doesn't exist. Yeah, baseball doesn't exist. And, and so it's, it's a great video because I had no idea that this was going on behind the scenes in the MLB. And, yeah, it's uh, Trevor Bauer was kind of like, screw all of you guys. I'm going to use it this year just to show you what it can do uh, for a pitcher. And he won the Cy Young. Okay, Christian, so now kind of transitioning um, away from the Mets and talking about them, let's talk about something I have a big bone to pick on. In the last couple of weeks, this Pakoda rankings has been all over Twitter, all over the Internet. And I'd kind of heard about them before, but I never really looked into it. And this is how they have the, the NOE shaking out this year. They have the New York Mets at number one with a 77.4% chance to win the division and 95 and a half wins on the season. Coming in at number two, who finished last in the NL East, Albay. I'll be, however you say that word, a shortened season last year is the Nationals with a 9.8% chance to win the division. Then you got the Phillies at number three, which I think is is a solid place for them to be at. And then the Braves at number four, and then the Marlins rounding it out at number five. I don't understand it. And I think all of Braves Nation erupted. Give me your take on it before I, I go into this spiel. Well, for from a Braves perspective, I think they would call that bulletin board material. Um, it'll give them a little motivation moving ahead. But you know what they see in the Mets? I think a lot of what we've been hinting at over the course of this episode with those big additions, their, their pitching rotation coming back to full strength at some point in the year, a couple additions to the to the bullpen and a lineup that, that really performed very well. Apparently, they don't really take into account fielding at all in these rankings when they're saying the Mets are going to win 96 games. But you know what? They're, they're saying what a lot of people have been saying about the Mets these last couple of years, and that is that they are a serious contender for this division, and they're calling them the favorites. I mean, it's a, it's a landslide of a favorite. So my whole take on this is that baseball prospectus just wanted clicks, and they got clicks. They probably – quadrupled their clicks for the month because so many Braves fans were upset about it. And yeah, I, 
I get it that the, I, I went into it and apparently the computer does not like the Braves starting rotation. I would argue that all day. But of course, what we talked about the Mets, how their lineup maybe didn't their full potential last year. They didn't perform to the full potential and they're taking account their new pitching staff and their new acquisitions. And they're they're saying that they're the clear cut favorites. I don't understand the Nationals at number two. I know they have Juan Soto, one of the best uh, players in the league, and they have Scherzer. He's one of the top pitchers, but he's, he's getting older, too. I, but, yeah, I just don't understand it. I don't agree with it. I think you can switch the Braves with the Mets, and I'd be happy. And maybe I'm just being an old guy, get off my lawn. But, yeah, that's, that's how I feel about those rankings. Okay, so, Christian, let's talk about – so, we talked about the Mets and their lineup in the NL East, right, or their lineup in general. Let's rank the lineups. Let's do it in 2020. Let's rank. So looking in the past, not we're not taking into account any of the acquisitions of this offseason. Who were your top lineups last year in the NL East? Well, last year, I'd say the stats kind of speak for themselves with that. The Braves are clearly number one. They were just one run off the Dodgers for first in the MOB and runs. So that. That speaks for itself right there. And then I would say the Phillies, number two. The Phillies, for all of their pitching and bullpen woes, were actually able to have performed very well this offensively this past season. And then, I mean, between the Nationals and the Mets last year, it, it's hard to say. I mean, the Nationals scored more runs over the course of the season, not by a drastic amount, but the Mets just – top to bottom, and we talked about their lineup at length already. Uh, we'll get into the Nationals more next episode, but I, I'd have to, despite the fact that they scored less runs last season, I'd have to say I'd put the Mets above the Nationals just on the basis of the fact that last season was only 60 games and that they were at the top in all these other categories, and then the Marlins are last. I, I can't argue with that at all, so i I'm gonna so I'm gonna go this way. I'm gonna say it was the Braves, Mets, Phillies, National Marlins from 2020. Yeah. Okay. Now, Christian, what with the acquisitions of the offseason lineups in 2021? What are your top ones right now? Well, you know what, and I'm sorry if this is boring. I'm keeping it exactly the same <laughs> as how as how I had it from last season. I think the Mets they. What they did this offseason was they made a clear breakaway from the Nationals in third. The Braves are in a league of their own offensively right now. But the Phillies, I mean, if they can put it together next season, they have the pieces in place um, despite the center field position, which is a that's a story for another day. Everyone around that is very, I mean, very good players, I would say, at this point. And I, I think that we're going to see them probably in the top five in runs next season, maybe pushing the Braves a little more offensively than they did last season. Um, but then, yeah, the Mets, they bringing in Francisco Lindor to replace your worst offensive player seems like it's just going to be a massive improvement for them this season. And, and barring injury, they, they're a lineup that is going to be really scary. Um, hopefully for so the Mets, they, they see Conforto and Dominic Smith continue these uh, these rises into um, just becoming like 
superstar offensive talents. And then the Nationals at four, Soto and Turner are, I mean, they're they're almost as good as it gets at their positions in the NL East. I know you would disagree. You'd say Acuna over Soto, but it, that's <laughs> that's pretty much neck and neck right there. And then between Turner and Lindor, your diehard Nats fans would have a decent case to make that for ha- having Turner in that situation. Um, and then, you know, they, they're bringing in some interesting guys next season uh, with the additions of Schwarber and uh, Josh Bell. So it'll be interesting to see how their lineup shakes out, if they could have like a return to form of that World Series season. And then the Marlins are last. This is going to be interesting for my end because I th- – this is hard for me to say. I think as it stands right now, the Atlanta Braves are not do not uh, from a pure offensive standpoint in the national in in the conference. The Braves are not number one, and I'll tell you why. The Braves have three players, well, two last year that had above 170 WRC plus. That was Freddie Freeman and Marcelo Zuna. Uh, when it comes to the Mets, they didn't have anybody above a buck sixty four. But outside of that, you had Ronald Acuna in the 150s, and then it was a significant decrease from there, from, from the lineup. The Mets kind of were just constant. The Braves have a lot of star power up top, but just in, in the Mets just added Lindor, who's, who's going to be the best player on their team. Um, and so I, I'm expecting regression from Marcelo Zuno. I do not think he was as good as he was in that 60 game last year. I think he's good, and I think he's worth the contract they just gave him. But I think the Mets have the better offensive lineup right now. I think if you take into the account the defensive ability of the Atlanta Braves, I take them overall as a squad. But you got Christian Pache in center field. We don't know how he's going to hit in the uh, over a full season. He did okay in the playoffs, but he didn't excel at the play. He's a great defensive player. Austin Riley is going to get the start at third base. And the Braves do not know what they're going to get from him. He's had a lot of issues with swing and miss. Um, for, for example, last year, his K percentage last year was 24%. So they, there's a lot of things they need to fix. And 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 I'm going to be honest, Ronald Acuna, for how great he was, his K percentage was at 30, and that needs to go down a couple percentage points. Um, so the Braves have a have, have a great lineup. I don't like I know that for a fact as a Braves fan. I don't I think they're going to get regression from uh, Darno. Um, I think he had a great year last year, but um, I think they'll get a lot. I think his BAPIB was ridiculously high. It was in the 400. So you, you expect regression from him. And Marcelo Zuna's BAPIB wasn't crazy high, but it was at 391. So you expect more um, regression from him as well. So I think overall, I'm going on a weird tirade. I think the Mets are the number one offensive. They, they have the number one lineup in the conference from an offensive standpoint. The Braves are number two. Phillies number three. And I do not think they're far off. I think them resigning Gregorius was massive when it comes to uh, rounding out that lineup at Bryce Harper, probably in the same realm as Freddie Freeman. They're both superstars. And then you got the Nationals who don't lack superstars of their own. And then you got the Marlins who have the best superstar in the league in Miguel Rojas. I uh, that yeah, I think I think our lines were this they're the same outside of the Braves and Mets flip for me, which sucks to say, but abstractly, that's what I'm gonna look at it as as of right now. I hope I'm wrong. Yeah, I think it's interesting. Um 
that there is such a debate with these teams. And we talked about the NL East having, in our biased opinions, the best pitching rotations in the MLB. I wouldn't go so far as to say that they have the best lineups in the MLB, but they it, it's really it's it's pretty close. I mean, if you look just at uh, looking at fan graphs here, there there were four teams last season, even with the Mets underperforming in the in the top thirteen in runs. So I don't I don't think any other division could say that. So just top to bottom, there is a lot of offensive firepower in this division. And I, and I will say this for Freddie Freeman, I'm so happy he won the MVP. Can let me? Can you guess his WRC plus right now? Just guess what it was, and also try to guess his K percentage. We we, we said Ronald Acuna's was at thirty percent. What's Freddie Freeman's? Get, get, give me a ballpark guesstimate of what his WRC plus was and what his K percentage was. Whew. Oh, put me on the spot here. I, I would have to say for WRC plus, he's probably coming in around. One, 175, 170 maybe. 187. For reference, everyone, that is very high. <laughs> yeah. I, 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 I don't want to open up another page on my computer, but I would go, I, I would, wouldn't bet my mortgage, but I'd bet some money that that's the tops in the National League. All right. And that, that's why he won the MVP. Yeah. But um, K percentage. <sighs> That's that's another tough one. Um, let's say I'm assuming it's very good, so I'm going to go with eighteen percent. So you would be close if we were talking about walk percentage. He walked seventeen point two percent of the time. He struck out fourteen point one percent of the time. I really hope the Braves signed this man to a lifetime contract because he was so good last year. Yeah, you'd have to think something like that's coming in the near future. (laughs) Yeah, I I know a lot of Braves fans don't want to think about it. This is not a Braves episode. So this is a good way to transition into our big, bold takes for the New York Mets in the 2021 season. Christian, what are your hot takes? So this one might sound pretty scalding after the way we've talked about the Mets lineup this season, but... Um, and you have them at number one, so this is going to sound really, really crazy. But I don't think that for for with the addition of Lindor and with the the guys that they're bringing back offensively, I, I don't think that they will finish in the top ten in runs in the MLB. I think we'll see a a bit of a regression from Conforto. I, I don't see Dominic Smith performing the way he did. And I mean, who knows how much they're going to want to have him out there next season with how much of a liability he is in the field. Um, and then I, I think what you got for last year from a lot of the guys in the lineup was very solid. Like you mentioned, top to bottom, they were they didn't have any glaring holes, um, but I, I just can't I don't see them putting up gaudy offensive numbers next season. I, I think that's a bold take because I think they're going to. So your your prediction is they kind of stay where they are in terms of run support, like runs they produced last year. That will be more of the same this year. Yes. Oh, OK. I will not go that far to say that, but I will say that the New York Mets will have the worst bullpen in the National League East this coming season. I know that's a hot take. 
That's very this bold. This is what the hot takes are for. Thanks again, guys, for tuning in. Next week, we will be recapping the 2020 Washington National season, as well as ranking our top five shortstops in the division. Death, taxes, NL East baseball.